Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following short selection is the opening talk from a longer session of Dharma Dialogues called Useless Thought. It was recorded on Maui, Hawaii in 2010. I've spoken in recent weeks about imaginary suffering, and that is the suffering that you're just dreaming up, the mental anguish that isn't purely imagination that many people might be familiar with. But I thought we would look a little bit at why is it entertained? So to a fair degree, it's arising due to conditioning. It's just conditioned thought clusters that arise that swirl around in anxiety and in pictures of problems. But the category I wanted to talk about tonight, and it's something that I found very interesting when I began to observe it, is that some of the material that's arising is actually some of the mental anguish, troubling clusters of thoughts is arising due to one's own interest. That's you're getting something out of it. There's something, there's a hook there. And when you start to see that, it's kind of shocking, you know, like why would I be why would I be interested in this story that's driving me crazy? I have a friend who is very attached to his rage. He just goes to rage and stays at rage a lot. And I watch how miserable it makes him. But there's something he's getting that just keeps pulling him there, that just is attracting him into that material. Whether it's a feeling of self-righteousness or it's just the pure energy of it. Some people are very hooked on the adrenaline of it, you know. Or it's a way that you feel alive. You feel, this is, I'm connected here in this world. Uh, Who knows, whatever it is. And we, I, I, many years ago, after a disastrous breakup, um, I suffered with the story of that breakup for a very long time. And I, at some point, I, even I was sick of the story. <laughs> I had already worn out all my friends. They didn't want to hear it anymore. And I, I, I kept being amazed at how much my thought forms would just keep going over and over and over. The whole play of it. What happened, what might have happened, the path not taken, the replays of, I mean, thousands of replays of every moment. I mean, I spent way more time replaying the moments I spent than I did living them actually with that person. Um, And at some point it began to occur to me that there was a hook of interest that was keeping keeping the attraction of the material so that more of those thoughts would arise. There was a hook of interest And as I began to unpack that hook of interest, I began to realize that part of the hook of interest was that I I had this unconscious sense that I was keeping that relationship alive. 
in my own head, at least. And that once it was not there, it was going to be really, truly over. That was one of the hooks. And another hook, equally illusory, was that I had this sense that somehow in the replaying of it, I was going to somehow affect the outcome of what actually came to be. Now, obviously, these are mad thoughts and mad motivations, but there they were. I, I, I began to realize, oh, this is some unconscious thing driving this attraction to these thoughts that I'm going to actually retroactively change what happened. <laughs> Or at least I'm going to keep alive. I'm going to keep... We're still connected, right? And so what was I paying for this? (laughs) What was I paying for the privilege of having these illusory motivations somehow? I was in a lot of pain. It was miserable. I could barely see my life through this haze of fantasy and memory and sorrow. and um, I couldn't really be present for my friends. I couldn't taste things. Everything was dull. That was the price. I was paying, actually, the price of my life, my lived existence. Very high price to be paying, living in dreamland. In my case, it was really a nightmare. You were also paying a huge price in, I suspect, physical fatigue. In physical fatigue, yes. Paying a price in physical fatigue as well, because it's very wearying. It was sort of a a low-level depression. And, of course, that's common after a breakup. People can be sad. But this went on for quite a long time. (laughs) You know, a couple of years. And um, at the point that I began to unhook, because I began to really see what was driving this obsession, I began to actually induce a kind of disinterest so that when the material would start rolling, I would, I would literally interrupt it and just say, this is boring, right? I'm getting bored. And eventually it became as though, and I didn't really use this exact metaphor, but I've thought of it since. But it became as though one is trapped in some circumstance and someone is telling you a really boring story. (laughs) And you don't want to hurt their feelings, but you don't really want to give it your full attention. And and it became something like that, that, that as it would start to arise, I would feel, oh... Do I have to listen to this boring story again? And I began to have a little distance from it and to really see it for what it was. 
And in this way, more and more disinterest would arise, right? And then what happened as a result with some time, all the other boring, nonsensical, crazy, depressing stories would also be seen for what they are as they began to arise. And more and more my attention began to be really unwilling to entertain these stories any longer. And now it has become absolutely savage about it. It's become, I I just don't stay long. The attention will not stay long on imaginary, crazy, ruminating types of stories. It's still, the attention is still available for, I mean, I've been grieving the loss of a friend, as many of you know, um, who killed himself two and a half weeks ago. And that material arises for me several times a day. He's been in my dreams. Um, that material is fresh and it's moving through. It's, it's definitely moving through. Um, I notice sometimes when the attention starts going down an alley of, oh, if only I hadn't gone to Hana those two days and then I would have been there and I would have talked him out of it. And whenever it starts to go into an if-only story about what happened, I notice that very quickly the attention won't stay on it. But when it's in the pure feeling of the loss or I'll think of something funny he said or whatever... That material is, feels fresh and true. So what I'm saying here is, obviously, some material that's coming through, some thoughts, some feelings, some emotions, are relevant. You don't have to be disinterested in those because they're relevant. And they have, they have their place and their due. But the, part, the, the material, and much of it is this material that is irrelevant to your actual life, is serving no good function, is basically sapping your energy. You can become quickly disinterested in that material. And your your facility to recognize what is relevant and what isn't starts to get honed. Such that you're mostly just flowing along, floating along in your own life, just in present awareness, easy. And there's a stream of thoughts, much of it conditioned, and most of it you can just let flow through. You just let it go by. You don't even have to touch it. My teacher Punjaji used to say, let the thoughts fly by, but don't give them landing clearance. (laughs) So most of them are flying by. They're just passing over. And occasionally some get landing clearance, like... You know, a a beautiful thought about a friend. You let that love fill your being. Or an insight you have. Or a reminder about something you need to remember to take care of. You might have to think that thought a couple times to make sure you remember. 
All of this is clearly seen in your discernment as to what is appropriate to pay attention to and what is extraneous. Now, because I've studied evolutionary psychology a lot, that is, um, the ways that we have emotions and behaviors that are largely based on our biology, um, that's the study of evolutionary psychology or Darwinian psychology, sometimes called. Um, you know, I have an interest in why are we such thinking animals? Why are we thinking so much? It's not doing us much good at this point. All this, we're, we're overthinking. Now, for much of early history for us as humans, that was our great advantage. Right? We were clever animals. We figured things out and we made tools and we started manipulating our environments pretty dramatically compared to all the other animals. We were the thinking animal. And it had a function, a great function to be thinking a lot. But as we have now gone through our evolutionary history, it seems to me that this amount of thinking and overthinking is becoming contraindicated to our health. It's, it's amazing how many truly useless thoughts there are. A huge percentage, I would say, in the 90-something percentile. And, I mean, just think about that. <laughs> you know, if that seems true for you. I know that's true for me, and I've heard it from many, many people. I've even seen some studies of it. And if, if we're having 90-plus percent thoughts that are non-functional thoughts, useless thoughts, and some percentage of those thoughts, for many people, are not just useless, they're troubling. Right? They're troubling thoughts. So you think about, here we are, this creature that wakes up in the morning and goes through its poor day of... 90% of the time being troubled by its thoughts. <laughs> You've got to th- realize that this, all this thinking apparatus, you know, it's, it's, it, it's overkill, <laughs> you know. So you don't feel, you should not feel obliged to follow all these thoughts. doesn't matter that they come. But you, you have no sense that you need to be following them. Be disinterested in most of the material. Most of the material is not interesting, is irrelevant, and some of it is even troubling to you unnecessarily. So be, feel free to be disinterested in your thoughts. When I was younger, I used to feel obliged to be paying attention to my thoughts. I don't know why. That was just a habit. But I would, if I thought something, I would really, you know, invest myself in it. And be very, you know, and maybe it is a younger person's game, you know, where you'd sit around and 
debate your thoughts. <laughs> you know, and... But, uh, you know, fortunately I've been in, in circles where that was not, that was not so, so celebrated and where silence and quietness of heart and being was more celebrated. And that became more the, uh, the norm. And that is what I recommend as a, as a way of life is this quietness of heart, this quietness of being that isn't that interested in all this morass of thought. And the few bits that are interesting, you'll notice, you'll know. And actually, as one quiets in this habit, there are some really beautiful, twinkly kinds of thoughts that come through that you're more prone to, you're more susceptible to. As you deepen in this, you know, there are flashes of real dharmic genius that will come through for all of us. I know this because, as I've told many of you, in retreats this happens, it's just common. It's just, I just come to expect it. In the two sessions a day when we're speaking, People will report or just speak or just share, and I can hear the, the, the freshness of what's coming through. So it's quite ubiquitous given the context of quietness of being and letting go of the mad trail of thoughts. And it's so easy to do, it turns out. <laughs> This has been a mini-cast of In the Deep. You can find more about my work at katherineingram.com or follow me on Twitter at Kath Ingram for notice of additional podcasts and other ruminations. Till next time. Mm-hmm.